Hello, everyone. This is Ari in the Air. Welcome back to the podcast. Stoked you're here. Today, I have my favorite guest I've ever had on the podcast, John Verveke. He is a cognitive scientist from the University of Toronto uh, and a profound thinker and amazing encourager of humanity right now. John's been on the podcast. This is the third time, and this episode begins the series that I'm doing with my favorite sponsor, Neurohacker Collective. They make Qualia a suite of cognitive enhancing supplements. And John and I have an amazing conversation that ranges from subjects like grief and flow and movement and how movement affects cognition and cognition and movement are actually inseparable. We get into death and so much more. It's, as always, talking with John, it's incredibly insightful. It is full of wisdom and encouragement, and it's an incredibly humane conversation. There was at some point where he actually touched on, uh, he really affirmed a transition I had made in grief and paragliding, and it was incredibly moving for me, and I was so grateful to feel as seen in that and encouraged in that as I was. So thank you, John, and thank you, Neurohacker, for um, for having me. Stoked that you guys are here. As always, if you like this show, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash air. Also, I am accepting clients for my philosophical coaching practice. So if you have existential knots that you're looking to untie, feel free to visit airyintheair.com where you can see the coaching page that has a link for a free intro call. So without further ado, here's a little bit of music and my conversation with Dr. John Verveke.
on? Hi, Ari. It's good to see you again. How are you? <laughs> it's fantastic to see you. So good. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, quite busy, uh, but good. Quite good. Yeah. What have you called it? Your summer of thunder? My, my thunderbolt summer. Yeah. My thunderbolt summer. Yeah. Very much. <laughs> well, I'm so grateful that you, uh, that you penciled me in here. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I'm um I'm in southern Utah. I'm in Moab. I was participating in the national championships of paragliding, and then I'm here in Moab, uh, base jumping, learning to base jump. Some of the best base jumpers in the world live here and are close friends of mine. And I'm learning to base jump, which is a really interesting uh, new sport for me. Mm. And it has uh, brought so much to the to the forefront of my mind and my thinking about sport, movement, death, meaning. Um, right. And so I'm actually chewing on a lot lately. And I would love to have your insight on some of this and, and jam with you on some of this. Great. So um, also I've started working with the Neurohacker Collective, they make Qualia, they're founded by Jordan Hall and the Schmachtenberger yeah. brothers who are uh, mutual friends of ours. And that's so yeah. exciting. Uh, you know, their goal is something along the lines of helping humanity make better decisions and have more bandwidth. Um, mm -hmm. And they're using nootropic supplementation as one avenue for that. And one of the things that I have done most in my life is enhancing my cognition through movement, which is something that you're kind of a, uh, a specialist on understanding. So I think I'd like to start there. Um, the connection between movement and cognition or movement and sense-making mm -hmm. there's something and and also uh, the connection between movement and perspective and this meta this metaphor that i've experienced where i when paragliding that when i get five thousand feet off of the ground my perspective is so radically different and i can't go back to the previous perspective so there's something about movement yep. and physical perspective that changes my spiritual, emotional, cognitive perspective. So I'd love to kind of start there. Sure. Um, one of the things I did during the Thunderbolt summer was to go on uh, Rafe Kelly's uh, Return to the Source, in which there's parkour and there's climbing and there's martial arts, um, along with meditation and mindfulness and, and dialogical practices, etc. Um, that was a that was a very powerful ecology of practices. I highly recommend it to people who want um, a kind of transformation uh, that is as powerful as that you might get through a psychedelic experience, but also much more integratable and transferable back to your everyday life. When I was there with Rafe, we had a couple, and we recorded some of these for the documentary film that's coming out. Um, we had we had several discussions about the deep connections between sensor motor behavior and cognition um 
And I'd also like to mention the work I've done with Greg Enriquez around this about, it becomes very difficult to attribute mind uh, in a sense of intelligence and the possibilities of consciousness to something that isn't um, moving around. Um, so sensory motor movement give, brings with it <clears throat> this problem of uh, co-articulation. You, you literally have to articulate your body like into parts that move in coordination. And then you have to articulate your experience in order to be able to fit your body to the environment. And that means the environment, the environment has to be articulated. And of course, we bring that ultimately to the articulation of speech, um, the logos. And what you can see, for example, is increasing evidence for, uh, from, from for e-cognitive science, the idea that cognition is embodied, embedded, enacted, and extended. I would add two more, that it's emotional and it's exactive. Um, but you get this proposal that the brain, the mind, body, brain processes we have for sensory motor navigation, orientation and navigation, those two really primary concepts, orientation and navigation, are actually exacted up into when we're trying to move around in conceptual abstract space. And that's why we, we, we use gesture and we use spatial metaphors for trying to articulate the relations of intelligibility uh, between our concepts, like even the word abstract, which means to lift out, to take out, right? Um, and, you, and it shows up. Look at the, the words we use to try to express. By the way, express is to press out. Um, our understanding, understanding of understanding. We say things like, do you see what I'm saying? Do you grasp my point? Do you get it? Uh, could you move a little in my direction? Um, I'm understanding that we're both stuck here on this point. Um, and, and so... Um, there is a deep, to use Evan Thompson's, I think, very felicitous and important uh, phrase and idea. There's a deep continuity between your abilities to make conceptual, intellectual um, sense and your ability to make sensory motor sense. And notice that we use the same term at both levels, sense, or referring to our experience but also for referring to making sense, gaining an understanding of the world. Even in the phrases we're using to pose the question, you can see the deep continuity between the articulation of your orientation and your navigation in sensory motor behavior and the articulation of your thoughts as you try to understand the meaning, both existential and conceptual, of your experience. I love this. This is what I'm hearing is that even in the words, there's a parallel of our movement th through the physical world and our movement through the intellectual, emotional, cognitive. Yeah, look what your hands are doing. Look what your hands are doing. doing <laughs> exactly. They're right? moving. Yes. But, but let's take that out of the metaphoric because right? that's like a speech language metaphor that we're mapping onto the thing. Yep. And let's bring it into the physical realm of like what is there a is there a really hard connection between my body's movement and my cognition? Sure. Well, like think about how 
your body gives you a sense of like in front and behind and you use those as fundamental ways of orienting your thoughts right you you have right you for even in your intellectual uh, endeavors you foreground some things and you background other things so right now you are foregrounding what i'm saying but you're relying on your background knowledge of how english works but we could we could turn and focus on english if we wanted to but right now you're act and notice Notice even the language that we're tempted to use. We're not we're not actually looking at English. We're looking through it at, at whatever it is we're talking about. And about means to be around it, by the way, by the way. Um, you know, and this goes to some of the work of Lakoff and Johnson. I think they're great <coughs> pointing out the phenomena. I think their particular theoretical explanation of it is wanting. But I think um this this notion that's being drawn from for ecognitive science of exaptation. Um, and I'll give you a non-mental example, like I've used this example many times, my tongue, I'm using it to speak. Many organisms have tongues and they don't talk. Tongues didn't evolve for speech. They evolved for poison detection and moving food around, but that makes them highly sensitive and highly mobile, which means they're great for being exapted into speech. Same thing, your cerebellum, now to your thing, your cerebellum probably originally evolved for sensory motor coordination. But we now know, for example, when you're meditating and you're absolutely still and your eyes are closed, your cerebellum is firing like crazy. Why? You're not doing any sensory motor stuff. Why is your cerebellum firing like crazy when you're in meditation? Because the cerebellum is trying to coordinate. It's taking those abilities from sensory motor coordination where you're, it maps and tracks really dynamic and complex contingencies between variables. And it takes that and it tries to map, right, the complex contingencies between all the variables happening in your attention, your awareness, your sense of self. That is a more concrete example. Um, Which could mean, by the way, concretely, that developing a ritual practice and I mean ritual in a positive sense, not in a negative sense, of sensory motor movement and sophisticated coordination and balance, like Tai Chi Chuan, which I practice, could transfer to areas of my life, like my work in graduate school, that seemed to have nothing to do with it. But when I was in graduate school, my friends were noticing a difference in how I argued and how I oriented to uh, other positions and how I was more flexible and balanced. This is the language they're using in my interaction. The Tai Chi Chuan sensory motor had transferred and was informing and transforming my purely philosophical intellectual endeavors within graduate school. This is wonderful. And I feel like this, that just struck on what I feel like has gotten me in the arena because my Tai Chi Chuan, as I understand it, has more structure than my activities, say, highlining, where I'm on a thin piece of rope balancing as I walk across it over the void. Right. Is that kind of movement satisfactory for that kind of development in my brain and supporting my cognition outside of my sport? Well, that, that the thing I have to the thing I have to say to that is you can't decide that a priori. 
right? Uh, you can get in the flow state in a video game, not all video games, not all people, but you can get in the flow state in a video game and it doesn't translate into flow states in your real real life. In fact, it you can get locked into that, right? The video game flow state and enter into a depressive state in the rest of your life. That and depression is pretty much anti-flow. So that you, it's an empirical question. You have to ask, does it transfer? And then, and then we have to compare instances where the sensory motor tasks or or or, or practices transfer and where and where they don't, and say, well, why are the why are the ones that are transferring transferring? And why are the ones where it's not transferring, not transferring? That's part of what I'm trying to figure out right now, actually. Wow. That's an incredible question. And that for me, that brings up the difference between highlining where I'm, let's say I'm walking across a kilometer long slack line. The amount yeah. of movement in my body is really high. And yeah. so much of the intelligence is embedded in my body. I can't think my way across the line. No, I, I can't no. cognitively balance. My body just does it. I use my head as a as an aid for my pace, my focus, um, kind of certain postural things that I remind myself yeah. back yeah. into, back into, back into. But the, say, optical perspective changes very, very slowly. Okay. Yes. And now contrasting that to uh, cross-country paragliding, where, you know, this year I had the longest flight in America. I flew 230 wow. miles in nine hours. Wow. My body is not moving that much. I do a lot with the brakes. I push on the speed bar with my feet. I do a lot with my hands. But I'm in a seated position all day long, and I'm doing really repetitive non-critical balancing things mm. like a slight difference in my hand position is not going to make the glider collapse or anything like that whereas a slack line you know the the wow yeah the requisite of balance is incredibly narrow right but my when i paraglide my optical perspectival view changes so drastically i literally flew over mountain range followed yeah, by mountain range followed yeah. by mountain range yeah, yeah so i in my life i have noticed these changes uh, settling into me and and vice versa i've noticed you know recently after going through a really painful breakup and having nine months of what felt like depression oh I, i'm sorry that's the worst oh my gosh so so sorry to hear that yeah, but but John, it I it literally unlocked something in me. This year has been yeah. my best year of paragliding yet, and I've had great competition results. I've broken the record, the the state record, and yeah. had the longest flight in America. And I, the thing that I can tell has changed is some emotional click that has happened. That it's okay. Like if I, if I have to land out in the boonies and I get hungry or I get tired or I get thirsty or I get cold, like that's all going to be okay. I can kind of deal with a bit more shit. Yeah. Um, yeah, but, yeah. But, 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 but I would love to hear from you. How would you in, what do you intuit the difference here between something that is really physically intense like slacklining that my heart rate is much more elevated for a longer period of time it's shorter in duration right i might be on the line for at the most two hours 
Whereas in flight, I'm looking at an all day thing, you know, nine plus hours in the saddle. But the the two perspective changes are radically different. The two levels of exertion are radically different. What, What kind of factor is exertion? What kind of factor is like optical perceptive change? Well, I want to talk about the three things you brought up because um, I think grief is important to talk about this too. Mm. Because uh, and I, I so the, to I, I think the slacklining now now you're asking me and I want it understood that I'm asking under the conditions I'm answering under the condition you asked my intuitive sort of mm-hmm. best ge- educated guess. So mm-hmm. let's be clear. Um, but given the given that error matters so much in the slacklining. Um, I think that is much, and that, that your metabolic rate tends to be much higher. I think you're much more likely to get into the flow state in, in, in the slack lining. And then you'll, and you're gaining a kind of procedural knowledge that, I mean, because it's learned in the flow state, there's a good chance it will transfer out and you'll get very good at, well, keeping your cognitive balance and your cognitive positioning. Um, the flying is different. That's much more emphasis, as you said, on the perspectival over the procedural, because the procedural is pretty secure. You're not, you're not constantly having to develop new procedural skills like you are in the slack lining. And so the, the priority of your attention goes to the perspectival and you're getting the overview effect. That's the, what you describe your mountains and, and the overview effect induces awe and one of the and it, you use it in the same in the Stoic practice, uh, the view from above, or the Neoplatonic practice of contemplating the various levels of reality, um, and this is this comes from construal level theory within psychology, that as you move to these different perspectival levels, it has a fundamental transformation on your sense of self. So one of the things that awe does, which is really interesting, very reliably, we're running an experiment, an experiment with Jennifer Steller and Michelle Ferrari and. Uh, Jun Sun Kim on awe. One of the things that awe reliably does is shrink your sense of self, but in a way that is experienced positively. And that gives some freedom to your participatory knowing, the, the identities you can assume uh, uh, and the roles you can assume. Um, and- I experienced that so positively in paragliding. We The term we use is called specking out. Yep, that's exactly You just it. become a dot. You just become yeah. this little dot. Right, but it's not the dot, the infinite, uh, the infinitesimal speck of nihilism. No. It's not the the dot. It's not becoming the dot of insignificance. And by the way, that is part of the answer to the threat of cosmic absurdity: is to be able to reduce the self, but experience it in terms of positive affect rather than deleterious affect. And that goes into, I suspect, that your training in both of these. Um, uh, was helpful for you in being able to positively reframe the trauma of grief. Grief is a traumatizing experience. The wisest person that I met in my life who like, was physically alive, he said to me, very, and when I was going through a really horrible uh, breakup, um, oof, really bad, but uh, he said to me, he said, You'll be grateful that you've gone through grief once it's over. And then he said, do not get into any serious relationship, friendship, romantic or otherwise, with anybody who has never experienced grief. 
because they do not have a depth of humanity that you need for a long-term relationship, which I thought was very uh, profound advice. And I've been trying to follow that. Um, because the thing in, in what grief does is many people think that what happens in grief is that the hole in their heart closes. It doesn't. What happens is you grow. So the hole takes up less of your psyche and you can then actually look through that into the depths of other people. So if you'll allow me a bit of a metaphor, if you've experienced grief and I've experienced grief, we can align those holes and see deeply into each other in a way that people who are not, who have never been grief stricken, they don't, their psyches aren't porous enough for that. Can I tell a story about this? It's my, it's one of my favorite stories from the Buddhist tradition. Please do. Okay. So this woman came to the Buddha and her son had died and she, she knew the Buddha could probably do miraculous things, although he always refused to perform miracles. He in fact said, if somebody offers to perform a miracle, they're not one of my disciples. Um, so anyways, she came up to him and said, will you, you will, will you resurrect my son? Will you bring him back? And she, and he, no, no. And she just is persistent. And finally he, he turns to her and he's moved by compassion. He says, okay, I will heal your son, but you have to do something for me first. And she says, anything, anything. And I said, I want you to go into town. He said, and I want you to get a mustard seed from a house where nobody in that house has experienced grief. And she, oh, wow. She, she flies into the town and she knocks on the door and she, right, has, can I have a mustard seed? Of course. Has anybody in here experienced grief? Yes, I have. I've lost my brother. And she goes from house to house to house to house. And then she goes, oh. And then she goes back to the Buddha. And then she says, thank you. Mm. It's so beautiful. It's such a connecting, humane experience to have moved through grief and to realize that everyone has. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't give her a propositional argument. He gets her into her perspective and her identity and then puts them into a situation where she has to start to see herself through other people's perspectives. And she has to allow her identity to be porous to the identity of others. And that's what brings about the healing, not mm -hmm. the physical resurrection of the son or some philosophical argument leading her to conclude that she shouldn't be upset mm -hmm. or something like that. And this is what I'm trying to get, because I'm trying to get you to see what you're doing in the slacklining and what you're doing in the paragliding actually gives you tools for dealing with the grief, not making the grief go away. You don't want to do that. That is one of the deepest mistakes because you'll lose what we're talking about here. But it gave you a way to reframe and reorient so that you came out of it, as you said, unlocked. You, you of course, know that the opposite is possible. You have great expectations. And Mrs. Mrs. What's her name? Caversham or found that she's her, she got stood up at the altar and she spends the rest of her life tortured by the grief of that. And she never, right? People can get locked and blocked by their grief. So the fact that I, I'm, I'm, I'm offering a, a reflective suspicion that this, you said simultaneously, this was one of the worst, and yet it was also the most enabling for you. I think it's plausible that that's because of these practices that you are reliably doing. Mm. It was interesting in the experience of that loss and that grief, I found my desire to paraglide disappeared. 
And yes. I noticed that as a giant red flag for me is scary. It scared me that I didn't want to do the thing that was so deeply entwined in my identity and my practice. Right. It, but you kept up. I kind of forced myself to just go out and fly with my friends and get outside. And and what, and so, okay, this is the pivot point. Let's zero in on this. And what happened when there was the drag, the anti-flow of depression, the net, the reciprocal narrowing. And yet, because you had bound your identity and your sense of meaning to paragliding and you went out with your friends and did it, what happened when you challenged that, that gravitas, right? That, that pull downward of, depression with the paragliding what happened sports have an amazing ability to just like bring you out of whatever is in your head and bring you into the moment because you're i the way i experience it is basically my body has a self-preservation thing that just like stops me from thinking about everything else and brings me right into what i'm doing right so there was, yeah there was some but, kind of you know like at least a momentary escape was it just escape though? So I get the escape and I get that it's a relief. It's, it can be an analgesic, mm -hmm. but you said something unlocked in you. You yeah. started yeah. Do, going farther and better than you had before. Yeah. That seemed to be after I had moved through it, or at least at the tail end. And right. it was a, it was a, if I were to describe how it felt, it was like some kind of confidence or centeredness that if like that I was going to be able to deal with like whatever came like that. It was okay. Because when you paraglide, I fly over huge mountain ranges, you know, and I'm looking down, I'm like, yes. well, like I might have to land there and that would be an, a relatively awful place to land. And I would have to walk really far or no one would be able to get me for a day or something yes. like that. But just the hypothetical that used to scare me that used to make me go around I was okay with that. Like it was going to be okay. I had dealt with like way more painful shit. Yeah. Yeah. So you see, you had bound the two together. You were weaving them together. You were bridging, you were, you were affording a transfer, but, and they, you were get, actually getting these two things to talk to each other. Uh -huh. Your grief gave you more confidence in the paragliding, mm -hmm. but your ability to, to, to land in different places was also helping you grow out of the grief. You had actually bound the two together. And I felt it as an incredibly connective experience to other people as well. That exact yes. thing about looking or like going around and looking yeah. for the mustard yeah. seed from someone yeah. who hadn't experienced grief, my capacity to, you know, like it, I feel like it almost vaporized my, my uh, desire to fix people when they're hurting. Right. That's I the just, worst thing to do when somebody's hurting, especially oh, I just vaporized it. Yeah. The best thing is to be with them as fully as you can be with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's, um, it's nice to, it's cathartic and affirming to be recognized that I went through something hard and I moved through it in a way that was positive for uh, a part of my life that I deeply care about and that I'm so passionate about and that it feeds each other. And it's yes. almost just like a feedback loop. And it's yes. interesting because what we just, what we just talked about was that the grief enabled my paragliding, but there's right. also like ways in which my paragliding 
uh, enabled me to move through my grief. Totally, totally. That's exactly what I'm saying. You set up a reciprocal opening, yes. mm-hmm. which was amazing. And, and, and think about this. Think about this then, Ari. Think about people who haven't built up a reservoir repertoire of transformative skills and practices mm-hmm. who then confront grief. This is what many, this is what happened to people. This is what happens to people who hit profound grief, loss, failure, who do not have, right, a religion or a, 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 an ecology of practices that is transforming them at the perspectival and the participatory level mm-hmm. in a reliable and beneficial fashion. Yeah. They hit, you, they hit this mm-hmm. and they have nothing to fall back on. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, as you've described it, that's such a crux of the meaning crisis, right? Yes, 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 exactly. Okay, so this is a perfect segue here. There is an amazing capacity for these sports that I've actually recognized recently as death sports, the sports that you do that have fatal consequences. Right. And the ones that are just no, most notoriously fatal are base jumping, paragliding, skydiving, these kinds of real fast altitude yeah. air sports, yeah. right? There's an amazing capacity for these things to make you face your fear. Yes. And have you uh, challenged in a way that's really profound. There's a book, The Rise of Superman by Stephen Kotler. I've heard of it. Okay. And I hope I'm not butchering the argument here, but essentially he compares sporting achievement in the last couple hundred years where the Olympic record has grown very linearly, tick, 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 just like very slowly where, you know, like in, in a hundred years, the competitors have added one rotation to their maneuvers. Whereas yep. in extreme sports, ones where you have grave consequence of being maimed or killed, the achievement has been 100x. People have gone from doing a single flip to now three flips with five spins, landing, taking off and landing backwards. And this has happened in a very short period. His intuition or argument and I apologize to Stephen Kotler. I've read his book two years ago, but is that there's something about fatal risk or risk in general. And and for me, certainly it's a, a physical risk that brings us into flow yes. and the flow state, you know, a hundred X is our reward or uh, our, our gains on these, um, sports. So is there like, I, I kind of want to segue into like the risk and the, the, the death risk and the death fear of these things and what it has to offer us. My, I, I, cause I, I, I feel it, but I don't necessarily understand it intellectually. I know that I've gained so much. My entire life has been balancing what I think is possible with what I don't want to, or how I don't want to be hurt. You know, from yeah. skiing as a kid, it was like, I want to do a flip, but like, don't land on your head. So this, like this tension of, of what's possible and, and what's trying to keep me alive. There's something there that I don't really understand, but I felt the benefit of. 
Yeah. First of all, I want to share it with that. And then I'll give you my best cognitive scientific take on it. So when I was at Return to the Source, I knew I was going to get injured. And I did. I, I, I really, I had, a, I had a, a deeply purple bruise going all the way down my arm because I massively hyperextended it. I could actually hear everything ripping. Uh, right. And so like I had that right to here and and then my i had major cuts on my like right and the whole thing and, and what do you mean when you say that you knew you were going to be injured oh because i mean it, it's first of all uh you know you you uh i i want sir i want to make something very clear the the teachers and the facilitators there are excellent and they put you in the zone of proximal development so the chances of getting injured such that you couldn't continue are 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 kept pretty low uh, but they're not zero, as they will tell you, and they can't make it zero because if they make it zero, the ta- as we're discussing here, the necessary challenge for the task goes away. Um, and so, um, yeah, I had to do some really scary stuff <laughs> uh, for me um, and, and some re- <laughs> really ego hammering stuff. You know, you know, I've been doing, you know, Tai Chi Chuan for like, what? 30 years and various things. And I'm trying my best to, you know, clamber over these rocks and everything. And uh, Rafe's son and daughters are just like, bing, 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 bye, right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> so all that kind of thing. Um, so I found though when I came back that a lot of background fear that I had been carrying in my body was gone. That, that had not been removed by therapy, Tai Chi Chuan, meditation, contemplation. Those things had all did what they 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 do wonderful things for me. I'm not dissing them, but there was a level that they couldn't reach, uh, a visceral but also primordial level that was reached by re- return to, doing return to the source. And are you crediting that to the experience of getting hurt, facing I, an an I, injury? I am crediting that to every, I, I, I coined a phrase that got to, uh, people like to, uh, every day, physically and or socially, because I'm also socially phobic, and there are challenges around that. Every day I face the horizon of horror. Um, and I made a commitment to myself. There was a couple of things I couldn't do because I have Meniere's on my left ear and I can't, there was just two, when Rafe laid it out, I said, I can't do that and I can't do that because that could trigger an attack and then I'll be lost for the rest of the uh, event. So other than those things, I did many things that were very scary to me um, and to to many people, I would say. Um, But I made a commitment to myself that I would keep doing it. I would keep going and uh, I would do everything at, at, you know, at least once, I would not, and I kept that promise to myself. Um, and so, although I wasn't very good, I, I, I people's the the twenty somethings and some of the instructors starting to say, like, you're dogged. You you keep showing up, even though this is really hard. Um, and I'm proud of that. Um, and I'm not boasting because my performance was not n- not near the top ten percent by any means. But what I'm saying is the the ability to keep that promise to myself was a profound way of strengthening my aspirational relationship between my current self and my future self. There's something about making a, a deep promise to oneself that one keeps in the face of fear 
that strengthens the aspirational relationship between your current self and your future self. So that's the first thing I wanted to say. The second is, and this goes back to uh, work I published with Leo Ferraro and uh, uh, Arian Hera Bennett uh, on the cognitive processes at work and flow. Um, so the flow state requires clear feedback of information. You don't go into these death-threatening uh, situations with ambiguous feedback. You make sure that you've got the clearest possible information, you know, right? Um, there has to be a tightly coupled interaction between your behavior and the environment. Again, these kinds of situations that you're describing have those features. And then third, error really matters. Now, here's the theory about this, by the way, that, and this was based on work done by Hogarth. Um, so most of your learning is not your explicit learning where you're explicitly aware and deliberately blue. Most of it is called implicit learning. This is your ability without deliberate awareness of effort to pick up on very, very complex patterns. Like when you're walking across the wire, you have to keep your mind quiet so that you've got space for that implicit learning to work. As you said, my body learns it. You're describing implicit learning, right? Now, in, the thing about implicit learning is it picks up on complex patterns, but it can't distinguish causal patterns, which are real, from correlational patterns, which are illusory. So Hogar says, what you need to do is you need to learn implicit learning in contexts that are like the sci scientific experiment. Because scientific experiments are environments where we, where we tease apart causation from correlation. What do we do in a scientific experiment? We make sure there's a, right, there's the information, the variables are all very clear. We make sure there's a tightly coupled feedback between the independent and the dependent variable. If I change this, do I get that result? And error matters to an experiment. The experiment can be falsified. When you put those in, you pull causation away from correlation and you, ze you zero in on what's real. Our argument is the flow state is doing exactly the same thing. Tightly coupled feedback, clear feedback, and error matters. And the more you heighten those, the more likely you are going to pick up on real causal patterns within and between your body and the world, as opposed to correlational correlations and biases that you might be forming. That's their transformative potential. So what I would put it to you that what these things can do is... They can strengthen the aspirational relationship between the current self and the future self, and they can get you into a profound flow state that is tracking the deep causal patterns of your body and how it interacts with the real causal patterns of the environment. That's so beautiful. I mean, you know, the part of that that I'm pretty curious about is where error matters. I feel like I need to double click on matters there. Yes. Error in a base jump is, can be fatal. Um, yes. And so are, is that, uh, that's a pretty deeply heightened sense of matters. Yes. N now you can, you can, you can put the self at risk in symbolic situations where error really matters. And that can also get you into the flow state. Many rituals do this. Many rituals combine symbolic enhancement of the error and physical enhancement of the error. Think of many indigenous rituals for coming of age 
or for uh, entering into marriage, et cetera. Um, one of the things we've done is because we have so prioritized comfort is we have basically gutted all of our rituals and many of our practices so that we feel comfortable at all times. And one of the less, I, I knew this, I knew this to some degree from my practices and from my scientific work, but one of the things that became super salient to me and return to the source is that's a mistake. That's a mistake. Um, right. Um, Rafe likes to talk about the research around that if you if you take young boys and you don't let them roughhouse, that's predictive of them actually being liable to physical aggression later on in their life. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of work around this that we have we've done so much, you know, with the self-esteem movement and other things that, that we have and we have removed uh uh, Han, the philosopher Han in Saving Beauty talks about we have replaced beauty with the smooth, right? where things mm. are smooth. That's mm. what we think of as beautiful. Whereas if you read ancient people, beauty is startling. It's striking. Rilke says something is beauty is an angel that just just deigns not to kill you or something like that. So beauty should be experienced like as this profoundly on the edge of awe. So there are ways of making it matter that don't necessarily require physical threat. There is, of course, social threat, um, which is, a, for many people, that's a very powerful threat. Okay. Uh, I got. Yeah. I, I need to stop yeah. you right there because you have just literally, we've, we're on the intersection of, of what I've been ruminating on a lot lately. Okay, please. Thank you for interrupting. No, no, I mean that. I, I'll <laughs> tend to go on. <laughs> The thing I've been noticing in the culture of paragliding, and I've been experiencing it a lot lately in the culture of base jumping because now I'm a beginner. Right? In paragliding, I'm a renowned expert. As I start base jumping, I'm, I'm seeing this thing. There is a fear to being hurt. And yeah. that is the fear that we talk about as the transformative fear to be faced in paragliding is getting hurt. But two years ago, I was first on the scene of a gruesome fatality in paragliding. Okay. Right. And I learned a deep lesson about why the culture has noticed that when people do quote, dangerous things or are out of their zone of proximal development, taking too much risks, people are in general and instructors, people in general are kind of assholes to them. Oh. Giving feedback to someone who is taking too much risk is basically um, not always, but for the most part, it's done harsh, brash, irritated, oh. short. It's, it's wow. not a... Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. What I learned when I watched the guy die and tried to give him CPR for an hour while the helicopter came, it was a very gruesome thing. What I learned was that when I watch someone do something dangerous or risky or I, or I make the judgment that they don't know the risk they're taking, I am actually afraid. It triggers my fear. Yes. 
when we recognize that we're afraid of something in our external environment, say our physical health as we perform a base jump, there's transformational power there. My intuition is that these communities are lacking uh, the secondary and tertiary levels of transformation because, because we're not actually acknowledging the fear that other people's involvement in our sports puts on us. Wow. And we're, pro we're projecting, we're yeah. skipping, we're skipping our emotions when we say basically circumstance is I saw you do X and the, the, and that is triggering this behavior in me, or that's, you know, that's wrong. That's bad. Yeah, yeah. That's something. And in America, in our litigious society, we say, oh, like if you crash, like you're going to ruin it for everyone. Our access is going to be uh, at risk or any of these things. And we're skipping this. You, uh, that, that triggered my fear. I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid wow. of, I'm afraid of what might happen if I see another death. I'm afraid of, of losing my motivation to do the sport or in general, what I think is happening is there's a veil that we have in these inside of these death sports, which is kind of crazy inside of these death sports. We veil ourselves to the risk. We veil ourselves to the chance that we will die. Yeah. And so when yeah. we see someone else do something that we judge as dangerous or wrong, we want to steal curtain and say, no, 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 don't pull my veil off. Don't pull my veil off. Oh, oh, that's brilliant. Not that, not the phenomena, but your analysis. Um, and it, it's, it, it's really interesting and it's also kind of painful. Um, my, my intuition is that we have deep capacity for growth if we start to acknowledge our fear that is not just physical and as you just laid out the fear that when our errors matter doesn't have to just be physical it can be social yeah definitely definitely so uh, i mean you you and, and what i just went back to uh to you know to great expectations mrs cavershop right? The fear of getting your heart broken is a fear that I've seen, you know, fierce people who are fierce MMA and they're all, this, but when it comes to facing how their heart, oh, they can't, they don't do that. Right. Um, there's, yeah. Fear comes in many varieties and you're right. We can, we can overemphasize physical fear at the expense of addressing other kinds of fears. There was a, there was a final event at return of the source. I won't say what it, what it was it was it was very much a ritual it had a lot of religious elements secular religious elements if i can say that around it uh, very powerful very transformative but um i i led the group rafe let me uh, do several teach several things while i was there but i led the group through a practice where you get people into uh you pair them up and they they sit um and one person is going to be the mindfulness mirror and their job is to try to remain fully present you not turn away and also not react or respond the other person is going to explicitly project they're going to treat the person who's being the mindfulness mirror 
as the person who is most likely to criticize them for what they just did. So they've succeeded in this day. Imagine the person that would most criticize you, project it onto the other person, and then just let it go. So you can feel the projection, but you don't get to play out the script because the other person doesn't act. And the other person is bearing the projection and not turning away. And then you, you flip roles. And it it's a powerful way uh, to get people to more deeply process, right? Um, what was what was going on, and and I, and I I I sort of got them to say, notice that you were not just overcoming physical fears. So when they do this exercise, they realize, oh, there was a lot of stuff that I was actually challenging, that I was actually projecting onto the physical environment with my fear. And it wasn't just the physical threat. There was all these other, and they, so it leads people to a deeper integration of when they've encountered physical threat. Brings up, you know, here in Moab, I'm, I'm my best friend, and I'm under the tutelage of. His name is Sketchy Andy Lewis, and he's one of the most prolific base jumpers of all time. He's incredibly macabre. Mm. He makes all kinds of T-shirts with skulls and and death and it's just so integrated into his yeah into his thing and you know one thing that he talks about a lot is that people find things to that are worth living for all the time but it's rare that people find things that are worth dying for yes and so i guess i'm curious do we have to find things that we think are worth dying for physically or socially? Because, you know, so much of what we're talking about here is the, the, the fear. And if we trace it back like really far, I think most of it is physical or social death, um, yes. you know, or something we experience as physical or social death. Is, is it important that we find things that have that level of meaning that mean that much to us that we're worth that are worth dying for physically or? I don't know. Um, I think it, uh, I, I try to think of it as a way that like triangulates between those two worth living for, worth dying for. Mm. Synthesizes. Here's them. how I do it. Pardon me? Synthesizes those two? Yeah. Or at least like, like stereoscopic vision, mm-hmm. how your left and right visual fields give you depth. Um, mm. Because I'll ask people, and I'll, I'll talk about meaning in life, and that they want to be connected to something uh, that has an, a reality and a value independent of their existence. And death, of course, shows that. But what I do is I ask them this I, I'll, I'll say, What things would you want to exist even if you'd no longer existed? Mm. And they'll say, Like my kids, or they'll say this. And, and it's like, Those are the things that actually matter to you. Because you want them to exist for their own sake, not just for your enjoyment of them. Mm, that's so beautiful. Paragliding is so exactly that for me. I, if yes. I die paragliding, please even take the equipment I died with and please fly it. It's so yeah. worth it. It's so transformational. It's so powerful. Please. I hope that people continue to push the limit and become one with the sky and and observe nature in its most awe-inspiring like inspiring yeah. beauty. Yeah. And that's how I would answer that. It's neither things to live for, things to die for. It's it's things that matter the most because they have an existence and value independent of your egocentric 
set of preferences and concerns. That's how I would put it. I love that. That's such a good litmus test for meaningful things in your life. Yeah. And of course, the problem with a a, a narcissistic existence is there's absolute that set of things is is empty. It's zero. It's absolutely empty. Mm. So so, so there's a capacity for mattering and having a deep meaning in things is, is very, very low, which is why they are so voracious for even junk attention and junk approval. Like junk food. Yeah. And what are those, uh, you know, I think it's obvious what those practices in my life are. What are those things for you that you hope would exist outside of your own existence? Oh, well, I mean, I, I definitely want the entire Socratic way of life and dialectic into dialogos and the ecology of practices and uh, I want all of those to to flourish, and, and uh, if I could, if right, if I knew that my death could reliably contribute to that, that might be something. I don't want to die; I wouldn't commit suicide. But if I had to die, and it was that that death would reliably uh, increase the chances of those flourishing and causing human lives to flourish, I would probably consider death under those, under those circumstances. That's a deep thought. And it's obvious from your work that that is a, that that's true, that you're, you have done so so. much work on that. And I so appreciate it. And I, to see you on the Lex Friedman podcast and to see you on the Jordan Peterson podcast, just, it makes me so happy that people, are more and more and more people are getting exposed to your work. And um, you've, you've been my, my absolute favorite podcast guest I've had since 2017. And, and uh, you're the most, people ask me what my favorite episode is. I constantly point them to our first recording, which is the real revolution. Right. I constantly push parents towards our second conversation, which was coming of age rituals. And uh, I just want to offer you as much, um, appreciation and encouragement as I possibly can, especially on your Thunderbolt summer. You're totally crushing it. I love you. I'm so grateful to have your, uh, our conversations and your wisdom and your work. And it, I'm so grateful for it. Well, thank you, Ari. I, 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 like, I, 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 I appreciate the encouragement. I, 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 I'm grateful for the encouragement. I strongly aspire to live like live, live with integrity about what I'm talking about. Yeah. I want to live it, and, and 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 I take seriously the fact that I'm not just somebody talking about stuff. I'm trying mm-hmm. to exemplify it, and so that encouragement is much appreciated. I wanted to thank you for your honesty and vulnerability, mm-hmm. and the conversation with me that really, very rapidly took the conversation into a, a really powerful kind of depth that I think is beneficial for anybody who might be listening. So thank you for doing that. You're so welcome. Let me, let me propose one little finale here. On the subject of integrity, the things you want to be able to live by the things that you're talking about. Yes. How I've experienced it as a podcaster and an aspiring person with like my values leading out is that 
I basically just regurgitate Daniel Schmachtenberger and John Verveke and Jordan Hall and Zach Stein over and over and over until it slowly drips into my behavior, into my body, until it integrates. And I think that people that I talk to right now, they, I think they're desperate to have perspective or have their expectation ma- expectations managed between their aspirations of their values and the integration of their character in their behavior. Can you please offer us some encouragement there? Help us manage our expectations while we try to aspire with the Enriquez's and the Schmachtenbergers and the Vervakis as we're stumbling along our path. Um, I will offer companionship. Mm. I am regurgitating daily Siddhartha, Spinoza, and Socrates. Mm-hmm. And Eckhart and Erigena. Um, so I'm doing exactly what you're doing. I, I, I'm, I'm honored that, and I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Socrates or anything like that, but I'm honored that I can do that for you. And I take that responsibility seriously. But what I'm trying to say is you and I are in the same boat. Mm-hmm. We have our symphony of sages. And my encouragement is whatever you're getting from me, it's because I'm doing what you're doing. And so it should work for you mm-hmm. like it has worked for me. Mm-hmm. Amen. Love that. Thank you so much, John. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Ari. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you again. So. Uh, Keep up the good work. Thank you, brother. Take care. Take care. Got it, Jump. Bye-bye. See you. Okay, you guys. I hope that was as helpful for you as it was for me. I am so grateful for John. Thank you, John, as well as Neurohacker, Qualia. Thank you guys uh, for supporting me. And as always, if you like this show, consider doing the internet things like the reviews and the ratings on Spotify and on the Apple Podcast app. Those are super helpful, as well as becoming a patron on Patreon. That's the biggest thing. Patreon.com slash Airy in the Air for as little as $5 a month. You can really contribute to the sustainability of this podcast. This is probably episode 130 or something, and it's been such a joy and been such a transformational project for me, and I hope it's been helpful for you as well. I also highly recommend, if you liked this episode, please go back. There's two other episodes that I've recorded with John Verveke on this podcast, and so highly recommend checking out his YouTube lecture series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. There is likely no better um, crystallization of the problems that we are facing in sense-making in humanity and how we might move through them. John is such a mensch, and I'm so grateful for him. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, John. We'll see you on the next episode more Neurohacker collaboration episodes coming up, my friends. Here we go. Bye.